All right. Good morning, everyone. Hello. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm very glad to be able to preach the Word of God today. Um, we're going to actually pick up today a sermon series that we left off back in the fall. It was in September. We started looking at the book of Acts together, and just a brief recap as we uh, get back into it after some hiatus. So the book of Acts, it begins with the resurrected Jesus Christ. After he was killed, after he was dead, he appeared to his disciples, and over 40 days he appeared not once but many times. And he had meals with them, he eats with them, he he teaches them his last teachings um, on the earth. And Jesus' last words in the book of Acts are kind of a key to understand the whole book. And Jesus' last words... Before he ascends into heaven, he says to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You can hear kind of stages there, stages of progression of the gospel outward. Last fall, over September, October, November, we got to see that witness begin in Jerusalem powerful witness, a spirit-empowered witness. I mean, we watch the church grow, like dynamic growth in Jerusalem. Now today, for the first time, we're going to see the witness expanding outside Jerusalem into the surrounding regions. Uh, And it's actually in an unlikely place that we're going to look at today. It's a desert road, a desert road that runs south from Jerusalem to Gaza. And this is what happened there. Jay will read the scripture for us together. Today's reading is from Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? about himself or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And they were going along the road, and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way, rejoicing 
but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. I got to spend some time with family over the holidays. And recently, my brother got into Ancestry.ca. Um, have you heard of this? This is a website you subscribe online. They, they, if, if you pay, they send you a kit. You do a, a cheat swab that has your DNA on it. You send that. You actually mail your, your DNA through the mail. And uh, they, they, they run tests, and you get results back. Uh, so of course, my brother's results are my results, too. Uh, we have the same parents. <laughs> uh, so I, I was curious to see what these results were. Um, what, what you hear is the results are often kind of surprising. Like you find out you have ancestors in like all these different countries that you had no idea about. Um, I was honestly surprised that in my case, um, there was no surprise. Actually, as, as it turns out, I'm 100% uh, <laughs> British in my ancestry. Um, it's, 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 it's meat and potatoes for me. So um, I was reflecting on, on that fact and on this text this, this past week, and it strikes me that my ancient ancestors, the British people, the Brutish people, um, ancient Britain, they were, were, were likely people who worshipped the power of nature. They may have worshipped a pantheon of gods. They didn't know about Jesus. Salvation gospel salvation uh, did not come to them from within their own culture, didn't come from within their own religious practices. People from outside Britain came to Britain. This was almost certainly during the, the Roman Empire, the first time that that, that happened, the first kind of wave of uh, evangelism took place in Roman Britain when not professional missionaries, but Roman merchants who knew about Jesus. Roman Christians traveled along the Roman roads and brought stories about Jesus and his disciples to the British people. Now there's a scandal in the book of Acts, and it's, it's implied on every page, but it's starting with this passage, it's, it's more and more clear throughout the whole book. Leslie Newbegin was a missionary and a theologian in the 20th century, and listen to what he said. The gospel is the good news of God's universal reign. It's directed to all humanity, and yet it spreads through particular names of people and places belonging to particular cultures. It comes through Israel, one people among all the nations, it comes through the man whose Hebrew name was Yeshua, one man among all the billions who've lived. Its language and symbols belong to the cultural world of the Eastern Mediterranean. Therefore, in the cultural worlds of Africa, India, or Japan, they're foreign. Now this is the scandal that the, in these foreign cultures of the world, gospel salvation does not come from inside their own culture. 
doesn't come from inside their own religion, their own worldview. It comes from outside of them. And it comes through people who cross a culture. People with a name and a home address and a different culture. This is, this is difficult to reckon with. Um, in, in, in the city of Toronto, this is difficult to reckon with. And we're going to see this morning that cross-cultural mission is God's idea. It's God's idea. God loves, loves the foreigner, the one who is far off from his grace. God loves the foreigner. He draws the foreigner to himself with love. The message is love, and the means is love, loving relationship and personal presence. God has designed the medium and the message to work together, to cohere in such a way that the medium and the message together like restore the fabric of a divided humanity. Big idea this morning we're going to see together. Uh, here are the, the, the two main points. The Lord gathers the foreigner to himself and he does it through companions first. And what kind of companions? Companions who tell the good news about Jesus. Those are two points. Companions who tell the good news about Jesus. Cross-cultural mission, as I said, it's God's idea. Look at verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem. Now, Philip, who's, who's that? So we, we've actually seen Philip before in the book of Acts in passing. He was one of the, one of the seven in the Jerusalem church who was raised up to help administer the food program. Philip, okay, he's got a Greek name uh, because the problem was that the Greek widows were being overlooked in that food program. So Philip was appointed to this task. Then there was a persecution in Jerusalem that broke out and lots of people scattered into the surrounding regions, including Philip. And when he gets this message from the angel of the Lord, he is in Samaria, north of Jerusalem. And he, he's, he's preaching to crowds. Lots of people are believing. It's fruitful. It's great. It's amazing. Then the Lord says, leave all of this. Leave all of this. Go south. Go to that desert road. Very strange. Okay, he says, and I love this, Luke adds his own comment, this is a desert place. There's nothing. <laughs> there's nothing there. There's no, no one. There's no town. There's no, there's, no, there's no city. There's no nothing. It's an empty road. But suddenly, Philip's there. Suddenly, it's not empty. Suddenly, there's a chariot or a kind of wagon you could gather because there's a driver and there's some space, apparently, for Philip to join in. This wagon is coming closer, and on, on, on this chariot wagon, Philip sees a man, a foreigner. It's obvious from his, from his clothing. There's a foreigner sitting, reading. Now again, we see God. God is like stage managing this whole thing. Look at verse 29. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot which could also be translated, go over and keep company on this chariot. Go and be a companion. 
And who is this man? God has directly told him to go and be a companion to this man. Who is he? He's an Ethiopian. He's a black African man. He's high status as well, as the text tells us. He's, a, he's in charge of the royal treasure. He's like the CFO of his country. He's, a, he's an important man. But there was a price that he paid. To serve in the royal court when he's not a member of the royal family, there was a price to be paid. That price was castration. Of course, to protect the royal family line, to prevent intrigues and inheritance, complications and fights and so on. Now here's Philip. Philip is a Jewish man with a Greek name. He's sort of middle class. He sees this African man. He's Gentile. He's black. He's from a foreign place. He's sexually different. And God says to Philip, I want you to cross all those barriers and be a companion to this man. You see this man? Be a companion. Go. And Philip goes. Now the chariot is moving around walking pace, or a bit more than walking pace. So, so this, this bizarre encounter begins. Um, Philip is kind of, I don't know, speed walking, or, or, or and, and he hears the man reading. In those days, any time that you would read, you'd read out loud. It was a different different culture, different practice. Silent reading was like, no, no one did that. He's reading out loud. And Philip goes up to him and says, um, excuse me, yes, hello, hello. Do you understand what you're reading? He says. And this man responds, how can I, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And now Philip knows why. He's on this road, this random desert road, but it's not random because God has sent him to be a companion and a guide. He's sent him to be a cross-cultural guide to this man. You get a snapshot here of how the gospel always spreads. The gospel always crosses cultures as it spreads. Now you see here, maybe like the most extreme possible example and picture of that. Different culture, different race, different status, different worldview, different religious background, right? Different country, foreign country, different everything. But at the heart, the gospel always crosses culture. I know we have a, we have a mixed gathering here today, and not everyone here is a follower of Jesus. And I'd like to speak for a moment uh, to those of you who do follow Jesus. And you're, you're a part of this church. You, you belong to this church. Okay, we're in the West End. Right, we're in Parkdale. Gord Perks is our city councilor. Um, he's a progressive thought leader on the, on the city council. This is who our, our, our neighborhood chose to represent us on the city council. That says something. It does. Our, our neighbors in this area are some of the most progressive people in the city. And the prevailing worldview in the West End is different from what the worldview we get in the gospel. A very different worldview. A very different view of human nature. Different view of, of human purpose. Why are we here? 
different view of human sexuality, there's a different view of what's wrong with the world, a different view of what will save us and what's needed. Very, very different on all those points. Now, one of our neighbors in the West End might um, be riding on the TTC one day, and they look up, and there's an ad that says these words, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Have you seen these on the, on the TTC? Have you seen those? Bus stop Bible study, right? Will your neighbor understand it? What they're reading, will they understand it? No. No. Why would they understand it? How can they understand it? Now this, this is why we want to be a congregation in the West End. That's why we want to be here, local. Grace West, why do we exist? Why do we exist? And the reason we exist is not so that we can be different from Grace Downtown, okay? I came here from Grace Downtown in 2014. A whole bunch of us came here from Grace Downtown. And if you did, the thought maybe crossed your mind when you began coming here, hey, this is small. It's kind of, it's kind of intimate. I can actually get to know people. Yeah, hey, okay, great. Well, all that is, is true, okay? All that, <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's, it's, it's just not the reason why we're here. That's not, that should not be the reason why we are here and what, what gathers us together to be different from Grace Downtown. There are brothers and sisters downtown, and they are very different from us in their size and so on. And we love them, our brothers and sisters. And we are here in the West End, not to, not to be different from them. We're here in the West End so that it's more effective for mission. We are not here for ourselves, just to get a, a better church experience for myself and what I want out of church. No, we're here, we're meant to be here for mission. And when I say mission, what I mean is to be companions for people around us in this, in this neighborhood and area, to be companions for people who lack gospel companionship. We are here to be like humble guides for people who lack gospel guides in their life, people without a gospel guide. And now how? How do we do this? How do we do this corporately? Like you can see a one-on-one -on -one encounter in this passage. How do we be the kind of church where we, we would see like more and more testimonies of this kind of encounter happening? How can, we, how can we pursue that together and cultivate that as Grace West? Now, here's the answer. I don't know. Okay? I don't know. I don't know how. I'm, I'm going to be straight honest with you. I don't, but we do need to figure this out. We've got to figure this out, Grace West, together. We, we, we have got to. Otherwise, we're a church without a mission. And that is beneath our calling as a church of Jesus Christ. Here's the plan. The elders of Grace Toronto Church, who oversee Grace West as well, and our, our, our new elder candidates came to this meeting. 
Last Thursday, the elders met together and made a decision that next Sunday, January 15th, we're going to have a town hall meeting here at Grace West. It'll be right after the service. Um, you won't have to go anywhere. You're going to, it'll be kind of part of the service as you experience it. At that town hall meeting, um, I'm going to share with you some plans to create a focus group, uh, a focus group for vision and mission at Grace West. With these kind of questions, who are we as Grace West? What are we good at? What, what uh, skills and, and, and blessings has the Lord given to us? Who are we? Where are we? What are the needs around us in this, in this region of Toronto? What are the opportunities in this area? And who is the Lord? Who is he calling us to be as Grace West together? So, over several dates in February, uh, we're going to meet together. Those who are interested to come and, come and attend, uh, we're going to talk about vision. We're going to hash this out. And it's not going to be perfect. Let's just say that right up front. It's not going to be perfect, but we're going to do our best. We, we are going to take steps, Grace West, to mature together and to clarify what has God called us here to do and to be. So, next Sunday, right after the service, town hall, I'm going to preach a shorter sermon, and we're going to have a meeting together uh, to begin this conversation and to hear some plans about how the conversation will unfold. Back into the passage. What we're seeing here is that Philip is a companion to this African man, but he's not, he's not just a companion. Uh, he's a companion with good news, which brings us to the second point. The Lord gathers the foreigner through companions with good news about Jesus Christ. It's the good news about Jesus. What you see in the text is that a companion speaks the good news about Jesus and the foreigner believes. Somehow, this, this Ethiopian man from a radically different culture and worldview and religious background, somehow, in his background, he has heard about the God of Israel. And somehow, this God becomes compelling to him. So much to the point that he would travel a long way to go to, from, from his home, home place to Jerusalem and buy a scroll that cost a fortune to own one scroll of the scriptures. And he's pouring over it as he's traveling. And all these things, the Lord has been drawing him, preparing him for this encounter that we read about, this encounter with Philip. At the end of this passage, he's baptized. It means a change of life. It means a new beginning. It means new birth. It means he's joined to Jesus Christ and belongs to the visible people of God. The foreigner believes. The foreigner is brought near. After the Holy Spirit is poured out onto the church in Jerusalem, this, this man, this Ethiopian man, is the first fruits of a global harvest. Some statistics I will share with you. In the world today, 25% of Christians live in South America and the Caribbean. 
25% of the global Christian population. 22% live in Africa. 15% live in Asia, and that is rapidly growing um, in China, the most of all. 12% of global Christians live in North America, and in Europe, it's 20%. Those are figures from the Pew Research Center. Um, and they're actually dated. Those, those figures are um, about 10 years old. The trend is only going one way, and it's toward the global south. In the West, the church is relatively um, in decline and stagnant, and the church is dynamically growing in the global south, in South America, Latin America, Africa. What those trends show us, and in, in looking back in the, in the origin, Christianity um, did not begin as a Western religion. No, it began in the ancient Near East. It's an Eastern religion. And the clear trend for Christianity is global religion. It is not a Western religion. Not in its beginning and not anymore. Now, to be a bit pointed here, um, compare with other world religions as well. 96% of Muslim people today live in the Middle East, Africa, or South Asia. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindu people live in South Asia. What you hear in those stats is where the religion began, um, the geographic spread is not as great compared to Christianity when we compare these world religions together. What makes Christianity more diverse? What makes Christianity more, more compelling to more of the global population? For example, why would an African man believe in Jesus? As this African man does in our passage, and as millions of Africans do today, a continent of one billion people with 500 million Christians who profess to follow Christ and growing rapidly, rapidly. Dr. Lamine Sene was a professor of church history at Yale University Divinity School. And one of his books is titled, Whose Religion is Christianity? And he makes the argument that as he writes about Africa and the growth of the church in Africa. He argues that at the core of, of Africanness, at that, like in the traditional African worldview, is the conviction that the world is full of spirits, good and evil spirits. And the question is, how can we protect ourselves from evil spirits? That's a, that's a fundamental concern. In the, in, in the traditional African worldview. Now, from our secular culture, how would that question be answered? How, how, if, if, a, if an international student were to, from West Africa were to come to one of our universities with that kind of question, what would they hear? I talked to a psychology professor or a sociology professor or a medical professor. What would they hear? Um, when you drill down what the, the, the answer 
the help that would be given would, would be something along the lines that there are no spirits. Um, they don't exist. And everything has a scientific explanation. As if to say, this, this kind of view from, from, the, from the secular West, um, African people, we like your colorful clothing, we like your food, but your worldview is like holding you back. But what does the gospel say to that kind of question? What does the gospel say? What does Christianity say to that concern and that that question? Some quotes from the New Testament. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, says the New Testament in 1 John. Another. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. One more. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In the African worldview, excuse me, in, in, in the gospel, there is absolute respect for the African worldview, the traditional worldview. And the gospel adds, it brings a new source of hope, a new assurance. How can we be protected from evil spirits? This is how. Jesus Christ, he is immense in his power, in his stature, and he is the shepherd. He stands in front of you, and he is not afraid of the wolf. He has a rod in his hand, and he is not afraid. But what you would never expect is that this shepherd, Jesus Christ, is the shepherd who let himself be killed. This is what the African man is reading from the prophet Isaiah. Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. His life is taken away from the earth. This same power that protects you from every evil spirit is the power that humbled himself to the point of death. We don't know how Philip explained it or what he said exactly, but we do know that Philip opened his mouth and told him the good news about Jesus Christ, Jesus who was despised and rejected, Jesus who was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Jesus who was crushed for our iniquities, Jesus whose life was taken away. But this same Jesus, from the same chapter of Isaiah, the African man is reading. Listen. Thus says the Lord, Out of his anguish he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and forgiven. This is salvation in Jesus' name. And it's for all the nations. If the, if the Ethiopian eunuch keeps reading in Isaiah, here's what he's going to read in just a few chapters. Let no foreigner say, the Lord will exclude, exclude me from his people. Let no foreigner say that. The Lord will exclude me. 
Let no eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who hold fast to my covenant. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. An everlasting name. That is what the eunuch does not have in his traditional culture, in which your name passes on in your, in, in, in your, in your children, in your descendants. He doesn't have, he, he's, he's got stature, but he has no name that's going to endure past himself. But this is what Jesus gives to him in the gospel. Jesus rose from death, and to not just him, but to all who believe in Jesus Christ, he, Jesus gives to him and to you, ladies and gentlemen, who believe an everlasting name, an everlasting name that will endure forever. What makes Christianity so compelling to so many diverse cultures? At its heart, it's a religion of grace. At its heart, it's not a system of rules. It's, at its, it's not a system of ascetic practices. It's not a ladder that you, that you climb up. No, at its heart, Christianity is a religion where our God comes down to us and meets us. At its heart, it is a person, Jesus Christ. And as a person, he has the ability to step into every culture of our world and gather the foreigner to himself. If you're here today, if, if you're listening in, if, you, if you're not a Christian, or if you're exploring the Christian faith, the statistics tell us that the world is watching Jesus. In an extraordinary way, with these statistics I shared earlier, a, trem- a tremendous, diverse, diverse, so diverse percentage of the world population is watching Jesus Christ. You might not feel that in the West, but Christianity is seeing massive global growth. And if the whole world is watching, you bet it's worth your attention. He is worth your attention, too. Like the final game of the World Cup of soccer that took place recently. An extraordinary, the whole world watching in on this event. The whole world is looking at Jesus. He is compelling to people from radically different cultures. People from radically different culture, worldview, religious background, they look at Jesus and they see something that speaks to their heart and their longing. He's worth your attention and your serious investigation, Jesus is. You might have missed out on the last game of the World Cup. I did. Everyone I've talked to said, oh my gosh, it was so unbelievable, unbelievable. Okay? I missed it. Well, do not miss Jesus Christ. Do not miss out on him. He doesn't just entertain you. He doesn't just entertain you for a few hours and you talk about it afterwards. No, he'll change your life. He will change your life. That's what he did for me. He changed me. If you are a Christian, if you're a part of this church, our mandate, men and women, is to be gospel companions and humble guides to the people around us. 
Someone else did that for you. Praise God. Someone else in your life was a companion to you and a guide to you. Praise God. Now you do that for other people, for other people around you. We're going to begin that conversation next Sunday, and we're going to do this together and grow in this way as Grace West together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this narrative that we've read today. Thank you for this picture of your grace expanding. Thank you for showing us your heart in this passage, that you love the foreign man and to draw him near to yourself by your grace. And you are doing this even now today with You have no idea with thousands of these kinds of conversations taking place around the world every day. And and thousands of thousands of people coming to know Jesus and to love him and to be baptized. This extraordinary global growth, Lord, we give you praise and honor for the growth of the church in China, the growth of the church in Nigeria, and Iran, and Brazil. Oh God, you are doing a mighty work, a mighty work. We're in the West, Father. And we want, Lord, this is our desire. We bring to you this desire and grow this desire in our hearts to participate and to be a means of your hand. Grow our Lord, may we grow a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and to serve and to to be the, the, the incarnate presence of the Lord Jesus, to be the body of Christ. That's what you've called us to do. Lord, help us. We need your, we need your spirit, as, as was prayed earlier this morning. We need your spirit to, to be poured out upon us afresh that you inspire us to know Jesus as we see him impact our neighbors, our colleagues, our neighborhoods, our streets, our condo buildings. We want to know him. We want to see his power. And we want to not miss this. Uh, we want to see his power and so know him more. We ask your spirit to do this. For the glory of your name. Amen.